0: We've been talking about who you are. That's a question everyone has to answer. And how did you get here? Because everything depends on that. We've discovered in God's word that uh, you are one who bears the image of God in a unique way. That you are a special direct creation of God. Matter of fact, everything in creation centers around God and then his image on this earth so you are the center of the created universe in the sense that you are the reason everything is here to express God's image in this world he made us in the image of God is what he told us God created man in his own image in the image of God he created a male and female we looked at that We understood something yesterday about the work that God has called us to do I want to make the distinction today as best we can between the way God would relate to animals and the way God relates to us. There's a huge difference here. The image of God makes all the difference because animals are not of the nature that we are. The Bible makes a very big distinction. The whole linear thinking about evolution that we just arrived at some uh, linear destination that we just kept getting better and better and we're just an evolved animal Does that make the distinction that God clearly makes? And the thing that makes that crystal clear starts in Genesis chapter 2 when he puts man in the garden along with his wife. The Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here's the distinction that is expressed that is so important for us to catch is that human beings have moral options. All the rest of creation, except for the angelic class, which is not a physical creation, but besides them, no one else has that moral option. We have a moral option. God put a tree right there in the very beginning with our great, 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 great grandparents to say, now you're going to make moral choices. You're going to make decisions, and those decisions are going to have moral consequences. You can do right or wrong. You can do good or evil. You can do what is just or unjust. You can do what is righteous or unrighteous. Of course, as this all began, we know how this worked out. They did what was sinful. They chose to doubt God, to promote themselves. They sinned against God's command, and therefore they sinned against God. And there's a huge statement here in verse 17, and it is because. Genesis 3.17, because you have done what I told you not to do, Because you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, dot, dot, dot. And we've looked at some of that, some of the pain that comes, the cursing of the world, the difficulty that we're going to have in trying to exercise dominion and sovereignty and all the things that God asks us to do. It's going to be hard, but it's all based on a moral response to a decision that man and woman were given. All they did is reached out and ate of the fruit of a tree that was prohibited. There had to be consequences because God is just. And we must recognize that in a sense that is different than God's relation to everything else in all of the physical creation. God's justice is reflected in the way he treats us with a kind of dignity that he doesn't treat the animals. He doesn't treat any other part of his physical creation the way he treats you. Representations of himself. Making decisions, being creative, doing things in the world, he is now holding you responsible for the moral choices that you make, whether you choose right or wrong, good or evil, righteous or unrighteous. And you've participated in this, if you think about it long enough. The Bible is very clear, whoever knows the right thing to do, and you fail to do it, you choose not to do it, for him it is sin. If the right thing is not to eat from the tree and you ate from the tree, well, then that's sin. It's wrong. That's a moral word, sin. We don't say that animals sin. We don't say trees sin. We don't say that rocks sin. Nothing can sin if it does not have that reflection of God's moral character. God is a moral being. He knows good and evil, and uh, everything else in creation does not. We have a sense of moral obligation to God, and we relate to him in moral terms because we are made in his image. When he says do this or do that, this is the right thing, that's the wrong thing, we choose the wrong thing, then God must respond with justice. I want you to think about this. Everything in the Old Testament after the fall in Genesis 3 starts to remind us that human beings ought to reflect the image of God by how they respond to people when they choose to do morally wrong things. That there ought to be a response to sin the way that God responds to sin. And he says there ought to be a system. Among human beings, people that represent me in this world, they ought to reflect the justice that I carried out against you and your sin. Moral decisions have consequences. God meted out those consequences. He enforced those consequences, and he says, I expect you to do the same. As he sets up the nation of Israel, he says, you're going to appoint judges, just like I'm the judge. I'm the judge of all the world. I'm going to sit in judgment over everyone's moral decisions, but in this world, I'm going to delegate to you judgment, and you should in your societies, in your communities, in your towns, in your classrooms, and in your families, there ought to be judgment. There ought to be judges that make decisions, officers who have authority to say you've done wrong, therefore because you've done wrong, this is going to be given to you, this consequence. You shall appoint judges and officers in your towns that the Lord God has given you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people. What kind of judgment should you have? Arbitrary judgment? No. What kind of judgment should you have? Based on your opinion? No. Based on what you think or feel? No. Based on what God has said is right. God sets the rules and the dominion that you are to reflect in this world, that you're supposed to exercise in this world, as we get together in communities, even in families, there ought to be a sense of justice there. Right, ju- righteous judgment is people responding to moral decisions because we're not animals, because we are not rocks and trees and inanimate objects. We have not only breath of life, like animals have a sense of animation and they live, they're living beings, but they're not human beings. Human beings have moral obligations. There's no courts for dogs or kangaroos or pandas, there's no trials for frogs. There's trials. For you, there's trials for your parents, there's trials for every human being, no matter what class, socioeconomic level, because there has to be judgment. And that judgment cannot be perverted. It can in any way be twisted. You can't do judgment in some kind of unbiblical way, like saying, well, I like you, so I'm not going to judge you the way I'm going to judge that person that I do not like. That's called partiality. And we shouldn't treat anyone differently when it comes to moral obligations. Everyone is expected to do the things that God asks us to do, and we, as people made in his image, ought to seek to enforce that. We ought to have that enforced in every community, every town, every nation, every state, every municipality, and no one should show partiality. Well, there are people that easily get around the justice system by bribing people. They have money, and because they know that there's consequences. To their actions, they use money as a way to leverage themselves out of consequences. It's as though you get some job, you make a lot of money. Your parents say, well, you're grounded. You say, well, what about if I give you 40 bucks? Could I get out of the ground? No, see, so you can't do that. Your, your parents, as they enforce the rules and exercise judgment in a moral context of your home, right? they can't, they can't choose to play favorites with their children, and they can't choose to use any kind of, 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 of blessing or any kind of advantage to somehow deny justice. And so it shouldn't be even in our justice system, countywide and statewide. The problem is bribes blind the eyes of the wise and subvert subvert the cause of the righteous. There's a right thing to do, a just thing to do. And when people start putting money in all of this, it, it gets all messed up. Listen to this verse here, justice and only justice shall you follow. God is big on justice, and this has nothing to do with, with cows. It has nothing to do with any animal in the animal kingdom. This just has to do with you because you reflect the image of God. You are made in the image of God, male and female, all responsible morally. And there ought to be within the court system, as God sets it up in Israel, justice and only justice. That's all we should care about is right and wrong. And in our day, that's harder and harder to come by because people don't even believe there is a right or wrong but we as moral beings, we forfeit the dignity of being a human being when we don't even think there is a right or wrong or right or wrong becomes relative. We talked about postmodernism just a little bit, confused you a little bit, perhaps about postmodernism, but we said that that's a system of belief that says everyone can just choose to do whatever they choose to do. Now it's turned into something else in terms of us enforcing our feelings when we think that a majority of us think this is right, then we make people do that. But the idea of saying, well, we get to choose that based on what we think or what we feel is wrong. We're supposed to always, as people made in the image of God, seek justice and only justice, and that's all we should follow. And God says, you know, if you do that as a family, as a classroom, as a community, as a, as a county, as a state, as a country, then uh, things will go well with you, right? If you do that, you'll live and you'll inherit the land that the Lord God is giving you. That was not only true for Israel, it's true for every nation around the world, every municipality, every authority, every magistrate. They all, if they would do what is just and just worry about justice and only justice, is it right or is it wrong? God will bless them. You shall do no injustice in the court. You shall not be partial, as we said last time, not just to people that you like, but even people you feel sorry for, like the poor. They don't have a lot of money. You shouldn't feel like you need to give them a pass on doing the wrong thing because you feel bad for them. They don't have a lot. And you shouldn't, of course, defer to the great just because he's someone important. You shouldn't let him off the hook from doing the wrong thing. If you happen to be someone enforcing the moral laws in the world, your little corner of the world. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Make sure that you are being impartial in all of this. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This New Testament passage, just in case you think I'm thinking about Old Testament passages only, I'm supposed to judge not based on what I see on the externals. We talked about that on the first night. We, We recognize that we are not about just how people make an impression in our minds, or I like that person better than the next person. We're not to do that. And Of course, we're not talking about you as a judge or some kind of authoritative uh, uh, mediator or some kind of person that is going to arbitrate between cases. You're not in that situation, but you need to know there's a government that is over you, several layers of government, and the Bible says that those layers of government, they may be good at it or bad at it, they're servants of God trying to do what is good. At least that's their commission. That's their assignment, to do good. Now, if you do wrong, then you ought to be afraid because it doesn't bear the sword in vain. For He is God's servant, and what's he doing? He's avenging, and those who carry out, uh, who do wrong, it's an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, So God in the garden says, if you choose to do the wrong thing, there's going to be a consequence because you're not an animal. You're a human being. You're dignified. You can make decisions you know right or wrong, and you've chosen to do wrong. Now, you're going to go throughout your whole life making moral decisions, and you need to make sure that you realize that the consequences imposed on you from the authority layers above you are carrying out God's will in the world, that they are God's servant. Even that phrase, sword, that statue there, they're everywhere. They represent the court system, right? A a lady with a sword and scales, and can you look real close, and blindfolded, right? Blindfolded means I'm not basing this on whether you're attractive or unattractive, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. I put all the evidence in the scales, and I see whether it was right or wrong, and I have a sword to punish if you've done wrong. And the gavel, of course, the representation in the courtroom of the judge's authority sits there in a robe, which by the way was a reflection of the clergy, of the pastors, who should have the best perspective on what is right and wrong. And they sit there on the bench, they make a decision, and then they slap that gavel down on the bench, and they authoritatively decide, here is what you've done. Either it's right and you're innocent, or it's wrong and you're guilty. And here's the punishment. That's a representation of God's moral enforcement of what is right and wrong in this world. We looked at this passage quickly the other night when we were talking about abortion, when a man strives with another man and happens to hit this bystander, a pregnant woman, so that her child comes out and there's no harm to the child, right? That's one thing, but the one who hit her shall surely be fined, right? Because you, you you hurt this, this pregnant woman as the, as the woman's husband shall impose upon him. You got to take it to the judges, of course, of the community, right? And he shall pay as the judges determine. Or whatever that might be, you struck my wife. You you, you should pay whatever, a thousand dollars for for hitting her and injuring her. But if there's no harm, no harm to the baby, right? Then you shall pay. Uh, but if there is harm, rather. That you shall pay life for life. If this baby comes out prematurely and dies, well, then you need to die. If the eye is is messed up, this, of course, is a phrase here that relates to all kinds of things in the justice system. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, knocked out a tooth, we'll knock out your tooth. Hand for hand, foot for foot. If there's a burn, then you're going to be burned. If there's a wound, you're going to be wounded. If there's a stripe, right, there's going to be a stripe put on your body. That is justice. Justice is you've done wrong, there's a consequence, and a penalty for doing wrong, and it involves consequence and pain. It, it means that you're going to lose money or you're going to lose pain. And there's several things in the Old Testament that talk about you losing your freedom as well, going to a, a jail city. what's was called a city of refuge where you're to go and you were stuck there because you've done wrong. So you can lose all of these things, and that's what justice is there for. And by the way, when you're feeling bad for the person that's being punished for the wrong that they've done, the Bible says, you shall show no pity, right? Your eyes shall not pity. You're not gonna have compassion for someone who's reaping the consequence of their moral decisions. You shouldn't feel bad for Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden because the Bible says they're getting their just penalty and God is just and it's the right thing to have consequences for doing the wrong thing. Your eyes shall not pity. Matter of fact, if someone murders someone, we looked at that passage in Genesis 9, that it's going to be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. If this is uncomfortable for any of you because you've been to Sunday school and church and Awana and you think you know better than this, right, I just want to talk to you for a minute because clearly all these passages must be wrong because you've learned things have changed, right? Jesus came along and he changed the rules, right? That's what you're going to say. You say, oh, Jesus changed the rules. Let's address that real quick. If Jesus changed the rules, then he's basically saying there's no justice anymore. Matter of fact, if someone does wrong, maybe they come into your house, they steal all your stuff, they kill your mom in an armed robbery, they go away. But Jesus is so nice, he basically says, shouldn't be life for life, or eye for eye, or tooth for tooth, or burn for burn, or stripe for stripe. Because he's not interested in justice anymore. Let's get this clearly in our minds. A couple of things. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Right? Well, I've just quoted a few passages that have that phrase in it. Matter of fact, I'm supposed to show no pity. If someone knocks someone's tooth out, we should go over there in judgment with the tribesmen or the elders of the city, of the judges and officials, and we had to knock their tooth out. They're going to walk around toothless without dentistry in the ancient world because you knock someone's tooth out maliciously. And the judges decide, you're going to get your tooth knocked out. Let's get a rock. Let's knock his tooth out. Is that going to hurt? Going to really hurt. Why are you going to do that to them? Because you knock someone's tooth out maliciously and you shouldn't have. We're going to knock your tooth out with this rock and no one's going to feel bad for you. At least we shouldn't feel bad for you because that would be a violation of justice. Well, Jesus said, well, you've heard that said, but I'm going to change the rules. Here's what it looks like. You've heard that, but I'm saying this, right? You've heard eye for an eye, but I say, do not resist the one who is evil. What do you mean, don't resist the one who's evil? Well, uh, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, right? don't slap them back. Right? Turn to him the other. Say, here, slap me on this side. You guys, if you've grown up in church, you read this passage, it's in the New Testament, you spend a lot more time in the New Testament than the Old Testament, you say, well, I guess the rules have changed. When you hear someone say, eye for an eye, well, that's always put in a bad context because you live in the church age. You live in the New Testament, you live... In a time where you're listening to Jesus, and Jesus was a lot nicer than the Old Testament law, and Moses and God, apparently, he was really upset in the Old Testament. It was really strict, but now Jesus came along, and I'm so grateful because he's not into justice anymore. Let's figure this out. I've quoted you a few passages from the Old Testament that talk about eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. A chapter before this, um, Jesus is being tempted. He's being tempted by Satan. Several things are happening there. Stones, you got to turn them into bread. Uh, you know, I want to show you the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down and worship me. Well, one of the temptations of the enemy was put this way, and the devil set him, Jesus, on the pinnacle of the temple, the top of the city, and he said, "If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. Right? Prove to everyone. And you're here in the in the in downtown Jerusalem. Show that you are." the Messiah, and everyone will be all excited and attracted. You can do a miracle there in front of him, defying death, it'll be a great show. right? If You're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Here is what the Bible says. He's now quoting Psalm 91. He will command God the Father, his angels concerning you, lest you and, I should say, here's the next verse, verse uh, 12, and their hands will bear you up, these angels, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So you're looking down the pinnacle of the temple, which was the corner there, where it was the highest part of it, and if you just throw yourself down, there's a lot of stones down there that Herod had put together to kind of refurbish Solomon's temple, but you're gonna not go splat on the ground. You would if there weren't angels there to help you. Just go do this thing, and I'm quoting scripture now. I'm quoting scripture. So you know this is, this is legit, Satan says, because I'm quoting scripture. This is what the Bible says. Didn't the Bible say? going to command his angels concerning you. and going to bear you up. You're not even going to strike. You're not even going to stub your toe. So do it. If you know enough about the Bible to question whether or not it should be eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you know that that didn't work out so well because Jesus turns around and says, nope, it's also written. In other words, you cannot take one verse out of context and try to apply it to somehow make another verse no longer work. It doesn't work. It's canceled out, it's void, because I got this verse now. It's exactly what Satan had done. When Jesus addresses eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, you understand he's talking about in this entire passage there in the Sermon on the Mount about the things that the people had been taught by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And unfortunately, when it comes to them, right? they were saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They were taking a passage that has a very legitimate application that Jesus is not going to reverse, or he wouldn't believe in justice anymore. We're going to look at it in other passages. But in this passage, he's quoting something they were quoting, and we know this about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, the scribes. They were bad hearted people that used Bible verses just like Satan used Bible verses. They took Bible verses and they used them so that they could do what they wanted to do. And what they wanted to do is when someone insulted them, which is what it was like to be slapped in the face. This wasn't a brawl in the playground or someone robbing you on the road to Jericho. This was an insult. When someone said something bad and they slapped you in the face, Right? this was something like, oh, you're a bad teacher. And they want to then take revenge, and they want to get them back. If they've insulted me, I want to insult them. So they were enlisting a verse of the Bible about justice in the nation of Israel, and they were saying, that gives me the right to be vindictive and vengeful, and if someone hurts me, I can hurt them back. The Bible says, so far as it depends on you, I live peaceably with all people. Right In the relationships you have, your classmates, your siblings, the people you're going to work with down the road in the office or in wherever you're working, the work site, right? You should live peaceably with all, and never avenge yourself. They offend you if they frustrate you, if they call you a name, right? Leave it to the wrath of God. God is going to get back to, on those people, right? For it is written, and, and this is a proper quotation now of scripture, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Matter of fact, on the contrary, if you're having a conflict with someone and they insult you like slapping the face of a Pharisee, right? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you got to feed him. If he's thirsty, you got to give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. He's going to be shamed by that. He's going to recognize that's a problem. I was mean to them and they were nice to me. Hey, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil because that's the whole point in relationships. I don't want them to insult me anymore. I don't want them to slap me in the face. I don't want them to do bad to me. I'd like to overcome that evil by doing good. So I know this, when it comes to eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, I should never take my own revenge in my relationships with people. The wrath of God is going to deal with it. Well, how's the wrath of God rightly meted out? How's it rightly dispensed on society? Well, we just read it, Romans chapter 13. God has a servant and it's the leaders within the community. It's the leaders even in your home. It's the layers of authority that are over you and the people that are even over you have people over them, and everyone in this world has layers of authority that they're accountable to, and they are the servants for your good. If you do wrong, then you ought to be afraid. Why should you be afraid if everyone's going to do what you said, Jesus, and you can do wrong, and everyone's going to reward you for it? Matter of fact, if you become their enemy by doing wrong, they're going to reward you. They're going to feed you. You're going to get free meals if you do wrong. No, 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 no. The point of the Bible is that leadership, that structure of authority, It bears a sword and it doesn't do it for nothing. It doesn't do it in vain. Because that authority is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Is God going to pay back the evil doing? Yes. Even in this life? Yes. That's why he puts government in place. These are some distinctions that need to be very clear in your mind. You ready? Old Testament, New Testament. Let's get this right. I don't have to write all these things down. I can get these to you later if you want the deeds. Just think and look at this. You can take notes on all the rest of this, but this is gonna go by fast. In the Old Testament, think now, God is giving instructions to God's chosen nation, Israel. And he's saying things like this: In every town and every village that you settle here in Canaan, I want you to set up judges and officials, and I want justice and only justice, and I want an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. If there's a battle and some pregnant woman has a baby and the baby dies, you ought to kill the man who did that. That's instructions for the judicial system. In the New Testament, we have instructions to God's international group. The group that he's internationally building in every nation of the world is the church. That's us, arranged under pastors in churches. The Old Testament is instructions for government policies, Israel's government policies, including eye for an eye tooth for tooth, burn for burn, wound for wound, all of that. It's all given to The government so that they'll know how to function with justice in the courts. New Testament is focused on giving instructions for people living under various governments. And Paul writes to Romans in Rome and he says, you guys need to know that the Roman government is there to punish wrongdoers. And they are supposed to live by eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, burn for burn, stripe for stripe. That's what they're there for, to mete out justice. The Old Testament it's all about, okay, now you need to pay these people. You got administrators, you got kings, you got leaders, you got princes, you got all kinds of people that you got to take care of. And they're, gonna they're gonna be, uh, going to be administrative structures. They're going to be, there's going to be administrative structures in the nation. So you need taxes. So go collect taxes. Guess what the New Testament says? Well, that, not collect taxes, you got to pay taxes. right? We are paying taxes because God is addressing this international organization called the church. And he's saying, hey, you Christians, get along, don't take your own revenge. Right? Matter of fact, oh, and you got to pay taxes to those people that are in authority over you. You ought to do it. Revenue to whom revenue is due. He goes on to say in Romans chapter 13. In the Old Testament, he gives instructions about how to set up courts. Here's how the courts should be. Here's how the elders should be. You ought to have this group of people in a village that everyone can come to. And everyone there has their case. They hear the case. Here's how many witnesses they ought to have. And if they wrong someone, here's the kind of restitution that should be made. And they ought to add a fifth to it. So you add 20%. You got all these things that are laid out so that they know how to function as a nation and set up a government and collect taxes and know how to run the courts. In the New Testament, right? He, didn't, he tells us, if you have to, utilize the courts. It'd be great if you Christians could stay out of the courts, but if you have to go, then go utilize the courts. The courts are open. Go use the courts they're there because they're part of the government and they have a sword and they don't bear the sword for nothing. And if they do it right, they're blindfolded. And that means they don't have a sense of partiality based on whether or not you're rich or poor. They don't have compassion on you just because you're poor. They don't have any any uh, benefit to you just because you're rich. They are blind sword. They weigh, weigh everything on the scales and they mete out justice eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Old Testament, Tells you not only that, but when there are bad countries next door and they're threatening innocent people, here's the instructions how to set up armies. Set up armies and do it like this so that you can win battles. Train your hand for war, know how to shoot the arrows, know how to use a spear, get the horses together, build the chariots, make sure you put the the fortresses up so that you know how to defend your nation. Because you, as administrative leaders in Israel, are to protect the population. You better have an army. You better have everything you need to protect the people because that's your job. You're, you're the government because I'm addressing the government in the Old Testament God is addressing the government to help them set up armies and win battles. In the New Testament, we're talking to the church, an international organization living under governments. We're paying taxes. We've got courts available to us by the people that we live under and he gives us instructions and our whole job is not justice in terms of us setting up our own courts. It's us going out there and winning people to Christ by giving them the gospel. We're setting up arguments and we're tearing down wrong theology, and we're arguing with people about their their bad theology, whether they're Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, or whatever they might be. We're saying, you're wrong. This is right. We're trying to win people's minds over to the truth. That's the focus in the New Testament. Old Testament focuses on national challenges of dispensing civil justice. Not only civil justice, but military justice, nation to nation, because he's addressing a nation, and the leaders, and the kings, and the princes, and the warriors. In the New Testament, we're warriors, but we're winning arguments. Our focus is on the personal challenge of not taking our own revenge when we get insulted. When someone insults us, like slapping us in the face, which was the ceremonial thing they did in the first century to insult someone, like spitting in someone's face, well then don't take your own revenge. Matter of fact, though, if someone comes and rapes your wife, kills your kids, you know, takes all your stuff, well, you better go to the courts because God has an avenging arm that is supposed to mete out God's wrath on wrongdoers. In the Old Testament, God calls Israel to be just and fair in holding people accountable. You are a nation, you have a government, you have courts, you have armies, you have guys with swords and spears. You make sure you hold people accountable for what is right and wrong. And all the structures of society, from the townspeople to the people in the municipalities, to the regional city-states, to the nations, all of the... Man, make sure you're just and fair in holding people accountable for their behavior. In the church, church calls us to be prayerful and hopeful that our governments will hold people accountable. We're praying for our government. We're praying for kings and all those in authority because we want them to rule justly. And we want when it comes to meeting out judgment like life for life, we want them to do it justly. We want them to do it fairly. We don't want them just to let people off the hook because they have high-powered attorneys that they can afford to hire. If there's wrong, they should meet out God's wrath on those people. And the church should be praying for that, and we ought to be hopeful We've got to help inform our leaders. This is how things ought to go. We ought to, in our case, because we get a chance to vote. When you're 18, you should register. You should start voting. And you should make sure that the right kinds of people get in those positions of leadership. Therefore, when those Pharisees were quoting eye for eye and tooth for tooth, that's what we're saying. Jesus goes, no, 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 they're misapplying Scripture. Just like Jesus isn't saying that Psalm 91 is, is, is a bad psalm. It's a good psalm. Is it valid? It's absolutely valid. But you're misapplying it. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were misapplying that. They were saying, oh, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's what you've heard them say about our interpersonal relationships. But you know what? They're under the empire of Rome. Rome has a Senate. Rome has authorities, has armies. Matter of fact, even as the Pharisees are walking down the streets of Jerusalem, there are soldiers with armor on, and they're there with spears. They're collecting taxes. And uh, you ought to recognize their job is to take that truth that he's always said you should have, which is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You got you to be praying and hopeful and encouraging them to do justly because they are a servant of God. Even if they're not Christians, they're servants of God to mete out justice. Why is that so important? Because everyone's made in the image of God. Everyone, the murderer, the rapist, they're all made in the image of God. And, and that means they're not animals. They ought to be held accountable for what they do. We have a whole big fat book. I got one. It's old, big, but they come out every single year. California law. It's called the Penal Code of Crimes and Punishments of Criminal and uh, of and Punishments of Criminal Procedure. This word "penal" in Latin means penalty or pain. Okay, the point of the justice system. I know they're not praying or reading their Bibles, and maybe some of them are, but most of them are. I know they're non-Christians, just like in Rome, in the Senate, and all the leaders that went around to all the villages in Macedonia or Achaia, they were all non-Christians. I get that, but they were given the task of meeting out penalties and pain, as it even puts in our California penal code, it says punishment, right? It's the penal code of crimes, the pain that people should have because of the crimes that they commit and the punishments for criminal procedure things that happen. Here's how you're supposed to punish them. And there ought to be pain. If someone runs for judge, which in our days we elect our judges, which we can talk about all of that later, but people run to be judges. And I want you to think about where we live as a society. When I start talking about eye for eye, tooth for tooth, not only do Christian kids go, oh, that's Old Testament. We don't do that anymore. You don't even think about the fact that God is absolutely 100%. It's all about justice. Justice and only justice is what we should have in our society because people are moral beings made in the image of God. And we need to understand that we want to see that throughout society in leadership. We must see that or we will descend into chaos and we're halfway there right now. When judges say, would you vote for me so that I can become a judge? You know, what we don't want them saying is what... Your classmates all say, which is, I don't want to blame anybody for anybody for anything. Ah, why would I? I? I wouldn't want to blame anybody for anything. Uh, I don't want to have anybody punished. I don't want to inflict pain on anybody. I don't want to tell someone this is how much pain you should have in your life. I don't want that. Um, I'm sure criminals really didn't, didn't mean it. I mean, that probably had a lot of rough things going on in their lives, and you know, who am I to judge? Well, you're a judge, right? You should be the one to judge. But we think, oh, I don't know, that doesn't seem right, and unless you go to law school and bury yourself in the jurisprudence of what it is to be a part of the whole legal system, it seems foreign to you because you don't even think about the fact that there are people sitting up in Santa Ana hearing cases, and they're expected to do what the Bible tells them to do, and that is hold people morally responsible because every last person that comes before them, whether it's divorce court or whether it's a criminal procedure or a murder case, they're all made in the image of God, which means we got to give them the dignity and respect of saying, we're going to hold you morally responsible which includes pain and punishment for crimes that you've committed. That's the goal of every judge. Unfortunately, judges often think like junior highers and high schoolers who want to sit around and chill out and think, well, you know, I don't know. Who am I to do that? I know most people don't mean it. They're good-hearted. They're a good person. They did bad things, but they're a good person. I mean, I wouldn't want to be responsible for telling anyone he can't you know, see his family for the next 25 years and go to prison or something. I, I certainly wouldn't want to send anybody to the electric chair or to get a lethal injection. I, I wouldn't want to do that. And I don't want to start blaming people. That just seems so passe. That seems so last century to talk about those things. Why? Because we live in a culture that says, really, when it comes to things you do that are morally wrong, it's really not your fault. Not your fault. And I think we love that because when we do wrong things, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. We love that. As a matter of fact, there's a whole entire industry to help you figure out why it's not your fault, right? There's an entire industry that helps you figure out why the things that you do that are morally wrong are really not your fault. There's a whole entire therapeutic culture that wants to look into your feelings and see how you feel and see what kind of childhood you had and what kind of abuse you might've experienced. And maybe that's why you did the things that you did. And everyone in our society is rushing to that kind of pity and compassion on criminals when God has said specifically, we are not treating people like they're dignified people made in the image of God if we show them pity when they are criminals. And we should say there ought to be meted out penalties for that, just like you. If you do wrong in your household, there ought to be consequences for it and your parents should impose it. And if your parents just threaten or they yell or they say you're going to be grounded and then halfway through the weekend, they let you not be grounded or you can't have dessert all this week and then by Tuesday, they're, you're fine with it, they are not doing what the Bible says they should do, which is treating you like someone made in the image of God, a moral agent who should have the dignity and respect of being treated as a moral agent. And whatever bad day you had as to why you came in and kicked the dog and said something evil to your mother should not be in any way an excuse for you to not take moral responsibility for your choices. You've got a whole industry saying, well, if they had some situation in their past that made their life hard, maybe that's why they did that. Then today, of course, we're all about the science and the science is, well, I got a lot of things, weird things going on in my mind and, you know, I'm depressed and I've got these syndromes and this, this, uh, you know, this problem, this, this disease, I got something going on and I can't really explain it under a microscope and you're not going to find it in my blood, but I can sit around and talk to someone and they basically clinically decided I'm this or I'm that. Am I saying that some people's minds aren't messed up? Trust me. I've been doing this work, people work, for 30 plus years. I can tell you there are some people's minds that are fried. I get it. They are fried. They can't think right. They don't know moral right and wrong. I understand that. But this is epidemic today, that we are not taking responsibility as moral agents, that God created us as moral agents in his image, knowing right and wrong and good and evil and just and unjust, righteous and unrighteous. But we're treating people like they're excused from all of that. Because they're sitting there talking with someone and the, someone has said, well, you know, that's just kind of, something's wrong with you. You've got some kind of mental thing going on here. And oh, you can function just fine. But you know, even people that are killing people that can sit around and hide from doing what they've just done and run from Well, they, you know, they're just crazy. They're, they're, they're innocent. They're not guilty by reason of insanity. And I'm just saying that is an excuse that you're going to find. Are there insane people that kill people? Absolutely. I understand that, but I'm saying this is epidemic to the us now with guys with lab coats to figure out whether or not you are morally responsible. Of course, in our day, we've seen it just this last year. I can break laws. I can do the wrong thing. I can do something unjust and unrighteous because I'm angry because I'm justifiably angry. I'm justifiably angry. I'm mad about something because something has happened in society or something has happened in the White House or something has happened in, 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 in the, the court system or something's happened with someone doing something across the country somewhere. I have the right to do the wrong thing and you cannot hold me morally responsible because I'm justifiably angry. Then there's probably what we've all tried To excuse ourselves, I just can't help it. I just can't. I can't help it. I did the wrong thing. I just can't. I can't help it. It's just the way I am. I. I I don't know. I don't think I'm mentally ill. I think I'm sick, and it wasn't because I had a terrible childhood. And it's really not that I'm angry. I just. I'm just. It's just. I, I just can't. I can't. Can't control myself. Let's get back to that slide of the created order. God creates all these animals, and then he creates people that are his image in this world, male and female. He creates them, and they have a moral obligation that no other living creature on the planet has. Um, When your dog says, I just can't help it, guess what? I'll give your dog a pass. And you can even train your dog. But the Bible says this, and it's saying this in a condescending way about people that are doing the wrong thing. They're not unreasoning animals, right? That's what evolution would teach you that, oh, you know, some people, they're just whatever. They're just, they, 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 we're just that's what we all are. We're just animals. They're not unreasoning, unreasoning animals, but they act like unreasoning animals. I mean, your dog does all kinds of things that a person shouldn't do because they're morally wrong. And I'm saying, here's the Bible saying, you got people that are acting like that, like unreasonable, unreasoning animals. And the Bible doesn't say, oh, poor them, right? It says, woe to them. They've walked in the way of Cain. Do you remember what Cain did? What did Cain do? Killed his brother. Killed his brother, why? Because he was jealous. And here's what God came and said to Cain. He said, you know, sin is is crouching at the door. It'd like to have you. It would like to overcome you, but but don't, don't do it. Here's what God would expect from Cain. Control your emotions. I know you feel bad. I know there's things going on in your heart, but here's the thing. Don't kill your brother. And these people that are doing wrong that Jude is talking about in the second to last book of the Bible, he says, you know what, they're, like, they're acting like animals, but here's the thing, they're not animals, they're made in the image of God. For they've walked in the way of Cain. Look at this phrase, and abandoned themselves. When people act like they are not responsible for their actions, right? They're basically stepping outside in their own minds, theoretically, of not even being who they are. You're acting like, you're not a human being created with the dignity and moral responsibility that God has given you. And when you say things like, well, I've had a rough past or, you know, I got something weird going on inside. I must be some chemical imbalance or I really can't just help myself or I'm justifiably angry. When you talk like that, the Bible would say, woe to you. In other words, this is not gonna go well for you. You're like Cain that can't control himself. And that's not how God created you. He created you to have moral agency. And that means that you have the ability to make decisions. Or how about Balaam? If you know the story of Balaam, for the sake of gain, right, these people are falling into the air of Balaam. And Balaam was someone who was, who was uh, lured into doing the wrong thing by money. Money was this attractive thing to him. And so the Bible says these people will do things that they shouldn't do, sometimes because they're angry or jealous like Cain, sometimes because they're drawn to some kind of benefit like, like Balaam was with money. Or maybe they're just negative people, like the people that died in Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion was a group of people that looked at Moses and go, I don't like your leadership. I think I could lead better. They're rebellious and insubordinate people, which means they always think they could do better than the people in charge. They think that way. And the Bible says you're acting like an animal, like you're out there like a, like a baboon trying to uh, you know, strut around for dominance in, in your group. I mean, stop. I mean, you're not like a, a goat or a ram trying to sit here and see who's the, who's the tough guy. This is not how leadership works. This is not how you should function. You're not an unreasoning animal. Second Peter says basically the same idea. These people that he's talking about, they're like, they're like irrational animals. But here's the thing, they're not irrational animals. They're human beings made in the image of God. They have moral agency. They have moral responsibility. They have dignity. They should be held responsible for their actions. They're acting like creatures of instinct. They're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, but that we're not. When your dog wants to do stuff it wants to do, it starts doing it. And the Bible says that's not how you should act because you have something way more powerful. What's that? You are made in the image of God. You have the ability to do things that animals don't have. You're not instinctual. And animals that are instinctual, I mean, they're on a whole different plane. They're born to be caught and destroyed. And people barbecue them for dinner. That's what they do with animals. Right, that's not what you should be. You're not an instinctive, an, um, uh, an animal or a creature of instinct. You are not an irrational animal. You're not someone who's like an unreasoning creature. Cotton destroyed is a good example of what's going to happen for those that act that way. They're going to be destroyed in their destruction. God is going to destroy them, and it isn't just going to be they're gone and annihilated like a lot of the cult groups teach. The Bible says they're going to suffer wrong for the wages of their wrongdoing. where we forget the word penal from in Latin. It means to suffer pain. There's going to be suffering. And God is going to dignify human beings by having them suffer in the afterlife. And that will be an act of God treating them like the adult creatures that they are because they're not apes, they're not baboons, they're not dogs, they're not frogs. You're a human being that's held responsible for your decisions. And yet all of us, no matter what your excuse might be, we're really good at it. And we saw that from the very first time there was ever a sin Full action by a human being. When God comes and addresses Adam after he had sinned, he said, Have you eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, It's the woman who you gave me, gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. It's her fault. I just want you, next time you get caught doing something wrong, I want you to think about your natural reaction as a sinner, a child of Adam and Eve. I want you to think about what's about to come out of your mouth when you're caught. And I'll bet your default position is, here comes my excuse. And who knows what it'll be? It may be you had a bad day. It might be, who knows what it is? I'm justifiably angry. You need to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm acting like an animal right now. I'm trying to excuse the fact that I can be instinctual. I can respond with my feelings. God's given you dignity. He's given you worth. He's given you a reflection of his own divinity. He's made you in his image. Don't make excuses. The Bible says you ought to know what's right even if you didn't have a Bible to read, even if you didn't go to camp and hear preaching from the Bible. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, we've already quoted that this week, and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You should be able to understand that God is a God of beauty and symmetry and order and right and wrong and righteousness and unrighteousness, so much so that just by observing the world, look at these last five words, so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse. Now, there may be things in your background that may help explain why you've done the thing you've done. And maybe after it's all done and you take responsibility for the wrong you've done and you're going in to talk to your mom or your dad, I mean, maybe there's a time to talk about some of the reasons that explain what happened, but stop with the excuses. Because if you've done a moral thing that's right or wrong, if you've done a wrong thing and you're called on the carpet for it, you need to own that and say, it's not about not about me giving you an excuse. Excuses are for people pretending they're not made in the image of God. Excuses are for people pretending to not be made in the image of God. If you're made in the image of God, like the Bible says you are, we don't make excuses. We don't make excuses. You want to explain later maybe some of the contributing factors that helped explain why that happened. Okay, but let's do that later. What you need to do is make it very clear that as someone made in the image of God, you're going to take responsibility for your moral decisions. Even if you didn't have a Bible, you weren't real good at even looking at nature. The Bible says in the next chapter, Romans chapter two, that even people that have no exposure to the Bible, they show that the work of the law in the Bible is written on their hearts. Their conscience, right? While their conscience bears witness, it keeps speaking to what is right and what is wrong. Why? Because God's created you in his image. Your animals only concerned about instinctive things. Am I going to be smacked because I've done the wrong thing? You have a conscience that tells you to feel bad when no one knows the bad that you've done, right? That's called your conscience. And it's reflecting the truth of God's word because you're made in his image. Animals don't have that. And their consciences, right, are conflicting. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I mean, you know when it's something you didn't do and you're being blamed for something you did not do. And you'll say, wait a minute, I know in my mind I have a clear conscience. Sometimes though, You're being condemned by your country because you know you've done the wrong thing. And all that even is going to be reflected on that day. What day? On the day, according to my gospel, Paul says, which of course is the only gospel there is, the gospel of Christ, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Do you think God judges the secrets of a hippopotamus? No. Why? Because they're not made in his image. He's not going to judge the secrets of your cat because your cat's not made in God's image. You are made in God. So the things going on in your minds and the things that you do in your own thought life are going to be exposed and judged because God treats you as someone made in His image. I don't like that. Well, it's the only reality there is. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, There's nobody in this room, no creature on earth. We're talking about human beings hidden from His sight, none. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We'll all give an account to God. And God sees everything. He sees the secrets of your heart. He knows what's going on. The reminder of judgment that is coming should remind us that God is treating us way different than He treats every other part of creation. Well, I need help because I'm a sinner. Well... That's what we're here for. We're here to let you know there's help. Not an attorney that you can hire because there is no attorney that's going to help you with your sin. There's no attorney that's going to help you with your sin before God that you can afford to hire. You need a public defender. That's someone assigned to you you can't even afford to hire. You need someone to be able to say, I'm going to fix the problem. That's what Christ is called, a public defender. He's called an advocate. He's called an attorney, a lawyer. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? Well, sorry, the ship sailed on that. We've all sinned. But if anyone does sin, that's you and me, we have an advocate with the Father. We've got an attorney. We've got someone to defend us. We've got someone that's going to take up our case. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one who never has, has sinned. He's the one who can take his human merit of sin his human credit of doing the right thing every time when he was a junior higher and a high schooler jesus always chose to do the right thing all that righteousness that jesus accrued that he built up because he did the right thing every time he can defend you he can take all that public i'm sorry all that that uh, human righteousness and he can come and say i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna give it to you i'm gonna make it yours But you got sin that's got to be dealt with. How do you get his righteousness replacing your sin? Well, he's got to pay for that. Here's a big word. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. That's a good word for you to learn. Propitiation. Propitiation means that there is a payment that has been made so that the judge is satisfied. There's a payment that's been made so the judge says, great. It's all been done. It's all been paid for. So here's the righteousness of someone who lived the perfect human life that you didn't live and Here's the payment for your sin and all of that can go on him and he can be the satisfaction, the propitiation of your sin and then all of his righteousness can be credited to you. You sin today, you sin yesterday, you sin the day before that. There's a law, there's more than 10. There's hundreds of moral laws in the Bible. They've been given to us to show us what God's standard is. And there ought to be judges and leaders and magistrates and authorities in the world that help mete out consequences for those who break those laws. Depending on the severity of it, depends on what that might be and to what level of authority that might reach. But every day that there is sin, because God is a righteous judge who sits on the bench and his eyes see every creature doing everything. That's the problem in the Santa Ana courtroom. When the Superior Court or any court meets, The judge is hearing all the facts as he gets the brief, and then he hears the lawyers, and he hears the people give testimony. He's learning all that. God didn't have to learn any of that. He's a righteous judge, and because he knows every sin you commit, he feels indignation every day. You know that word, indignation? Indignation. That means he has a righteous anger. It's a justified anger. He's justified in being angry. Here's another word for it in the Bible, wrath. He's angry. He has wrath toward your sin every single day. He's a righteous judge because he's a judge, and God is just. The law of God, as it's held up, it's a standard that you and I fall short of. And every time we fall short of it, God is angry about that. But he's provided a solution. As a charge was held over Jesus' head, which was they didn't know what to put other than Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Well, he was the king of the Jews. He's king of the whole world. But what crime did he commit? Well, they had nothing to write on there except for that. Colossians says what was really written on there was everything you've ever done. That's how God saw it. The debt that you owed God, the judge, the crimes that you've committed morally for every wrong thing you've done, they're written on that on that placard. that They ended up nailing to the cross above his head. And as he was whipped and beaten, the Bible says because of his blood, because he was being tortured, that the punishment on him was making us justified. That means that the gavel can come down and can say, not guilty. His punishment, propitiation, his punishment means that we can have have a verdict that says, justified. And if that's the case, how much more should we be saved by him because of that transaction from that indignation of God, that wrath of God? Because every day he feels it, and then one day he's got to deal with that. Now, The good thing for us is if you happen to be a Christian, all of that indignation goes back on the cross and your propitiation has been accomplished. And you get saved. You get exempted from the wrath of God. Christ walked through those streets carrying a cross, collapsed underneath it. And his suffering was a deliverance from the wrath that is coming. Romans 2.4 says that Every non Christian who has an unrepentant heart is storing up for themselves more and more wrath. Every decision they make, all the indignation God feels every day, storing up wrath for themselves for the day of God's righteous judgment, the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment, his proper judgment, comes down on individuals. 2,000 years ago, he took that on. He bore our sins in his body on that cross, on that wooden cross, that tree. He took that and absorbed the penalty of your sin. He suffered. He only had to do it once because he's perfect and so valuable that all of that was magnified to cover your sin and mine if you put your trust in him. Christ also suffered for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one stood in for the unrighteous. The sinless one stood in for the sinner and all the punishment that should come on you, it went on him, so that he could bring you to God, introduce you to the judge, and the judge say, oh, no sin. Be a day you stand before the judge, the invisible God will be there, enthroned in light. Here's how it's predicted in the third to last chapter of the Bible, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. I mean, like he's the ultimate authority. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the judge of judges. When I saw the dead, everyone who died, great people, small people, little villagers, people that cracked rocks as as nine-year-olds and people that grew up In the lap of luxury, the trust fund babies, everyone standing before the throne and the books were opened. So I got multiple books that were being opened. They're opened. He opens up the books and then there's another book, a third book, and another book was opened and that one we know it's named, it's the book of life. So I got at least three books here. The dead were judged by what was written in the books. What's in the books? Their deeds according to what they had done. So what they had done now is apparently recorded in the books because God feels indignation every day because he's keeping track of everyone's sin. So there's a book of deeds. Now, how would I know that those deeds are either right or wrong, righteous or unrighteous, just or unjust, good or bad, good or evil? How would I know? Well, creation says something about that. Conscience says something about that. But all that reflects the Bible. It's the standard. Here's what you should be. Here's what you are. And then there's this book called The Book of Life, which he hasn't explained quite yet. But everyone who dies is going to have to stand before this judge. And the sea is going to give up the dead that were in it, the dead, death and Hades, everything that's, that has died, all the containing places for the spheres of the dead, they're going to come and stand before God. And they were judged. God isn't going to say, well, how were you feeling? How were you raised? You have, were you justifiably angry? Every sin, judge, each one of them according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, a lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown to the lake of fire. Now I understand something about this book of life. It becomes the difference between whether or not I'm in the line to get the attorney, the public defender, or whether I'm standing here paying the penalty for my own sin. A lot of friends... That you know, a lot of people in your life think this is all crazy. And maybe you're sitting here, you think it's crazy. Um, if you're a skeptic, the Bible's got a verse for you. You ready? The stupid man cannot know, and the fool cannot understand this. They think everything's fine in the world. That though the wicked sprout like the grass, and evildoers flourish. can't you know, tell me Ellen Page and Harry Styles and all these cool people, or, you know, Bruce Jenner, you can't tell me that they're wrong. I mean, come on. They're celebrities. They're talented. They're flourishing. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like the grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction. See, if you're stupid, that's the biblical word here, or a fool, you think, you know what? If everyone's applauding the transsexuals or the drag queens or the homosexuals or or, or you know, people that are disregarding the laws of God at whatever level, in whatever way. You know, they're flourishing. I like that better, because they, they seem to be really in the in crowd, and according to the leaders of our country, they're on the right side of history, and we're the fuddy-duddies in the Bible thumbers. So they seem to be flourishing. The Bible says only the stupid person or the fool doesn't recognize where that leads. That leads to destruction. There's one more word, by the way, in verse seven. Forever. God's justice is perfect. He treats us with so much dignity that there will be punishment on those who knew the right thing by creation and conscience. And many of them, the degree to which they suffer is based on how much information they had. And there's a lot of people, even some people probably sitting here today that will hear all this, that have the brain to understand all this. They have the moral capacity to know that they have right or wrong decisions that they make, but they're going to reject it all because they'd rather be in with the flourishing grass. The people of this world that are going to applaud them but it's the stupid person or the fool in essence that forgets that god is just i would advise you to not be stupid i would advise you to know that god is just but thankfully not only is he just in taking people that refuse to come to him for salvation and reject them your name's not written in the lamb's book of life thrown into the lake of fire he's also gracious He's so gracious that all you have to do is cling to him in faith tonight. And the Bible says that the King of heaven, who should destroy you because of your sin and say to you, because you've done this, you're going to get cast out. He's going to say to those on his right, people that have trusted him, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You got to acquire the attorney. That's the only way you get this. How do you acquire the attorney? Well, you have to admit that God's in charge. You have to admit that God's in charge. You have to know who he is, that he's in charge of this world. You've got to realize you don't measure up. You've got a sin problem. You've got a sin problem that you've got to take moral responsibility for. You've got to know that God should punish you for your sin. You should recognize that. You should realize that. And you should believe that Christ came to live in your place. He lived the junior high life, the high school life, the adult life, the childhood life. He lived all of those things so that he could give to you the righteousness that he stored up. You should understand that Christ suffered for your sins on the cross as the propitiation through his blood. He can now receive the penalty that you deserve. Words we talk about a lot around here, repentance and faith. You need to repent, which is to wholeheartedly turn from your sin. Say the moral decisions I make, I need to make decisions that are different. I realize I have not lived for the approval of God. I live for the approval of the world, and I'm, I'm done with that. That's called repentance. The other word is faith. I got to trust in all that Christ did for me. He died on the cross as the absorption of my penalty. He lived for the earning of my human righteousness, and I'm going to trust that that's it, that he accomplished it all. First John chapter 2 talks about the fact, he writes these things to you, little children, that you won't sin, but if you do sin, we get an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ, the right to the propitiation for our sins. The next verse says, and you'll know that you have come to know him if you keep his commandments. You'll start a life of struggle against your own flesh, as we talked about the other night, putting to death the disease. You're going to say, I'm doing that because I know who my boss is. It's not my friends, it's not the world, it's not my parents, it's not the authorities in this world, it's it's Christ, so I'm going to live to obey Him. Admit God's in charge. Realize you don't measure up. That's called sin. No God should punish you. You got to accept that. No excuses. That's number three. No excuses. Right. Believe that He came to live in your place. Christ lived for you, died for you. you got to repent. Got to trust. And you got to live like He's in charge. And if you do that tonight, and then you die of some weird disease in your sleep tonight. The Bible says you will hear from him to those on his right. Come, you, blessed of the Father, into the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But if you don't do that, the Bible's really clear. Your name's not going to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're not on the public defender's docket. There's a consequence for that. I want you to grapple with that tonight, okay? Know where you stand with God. Let's pray. God, help us, please, to think this through on a level, perhaps, that we never have before, to be honest, that we're made in your image, to be made in your image, is to be morally responsible people. And that means that we recognize that in our moral failures, we need salvation. We need forgiveness. We need propitiation. And therefore, we know what we need to do. Own up to our moral decisions, not just with our parents and our teachers and authorities and cops when they pull us over, but we need to start with you right now. Say no excuses, I'm a sinner. I know I should be punished for my sin. I'm gonna put my trust in you, I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna live differently from this point on as you empower me and give me strength to do it, I'm gonna live differently. Because you're the boss, you're the judge. You're just, but you're also merciful and gracious. And thanks that you loved us so much that you'd give your son to die in our place if we would trust in him. We wouldn't perish, but we have everlasting life. Make that a reality for more students here in this room tonight. In Jesus' name.